All right. Good morning, everybody. Everybody doing good? It is Baptism Sunday. Who's excited? No, no, that is, that, okay, let's try this again. We are baptizing people today. Who's excited? There we are, yeah. Um, I, I get, I mean, it's hard for me to contain my emotions during baptism, but that's okay. Um, you know, what we get to celebrate, the, what people are declaring is a really, really fun and amazing thing. So I'm looking forward at the end of service when we get to do that together. But as we dive in today, you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. For a lot of us, this may be a very familiar passage. Um, you'll look at it and you'll see the titles, prodigal son, lost sheep, lost coin. You're like, oh, I know this. What can I learn today? Well, I'll tell you what I love about scripture is I feel like every time I read through something, I learn something new. Um, whatever I'm going through in life, whatever season I'm in, I really feel like God speaks through his word through all time in all situations and all circumstances. So I love that we get to dive in here today as we continue um, our Always God series. So uh, would you pray with me as we get started today? God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that you are the always God. You're always there. And uh, we get to talk more today about another thing that you always do for us. And I pray that as we, as we dive into your word today, God, you touch every heart. God, as we, we see people get baptized today, we celebrate and cheer with the decisions that have been made. And God, everything we do is for one reason, that is to bring you the glory. So God, we thank you, we love you. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to continue our series on the always God. We've talked about how God is always listening, how God is always speaking, and how God is always hearing um, the things that are uh, talking, and he's always seeing you guys. And I know last week uh, was, was a little difficult at times because when we talked about how God is always seeing, the, the question really was, we're not asking God, God, do you see what's happening? The question was, God, do you care? Yes, he sees, God, do you care? And we talked about tragedy and how God works in the midst of tragedy and, um, and it, was, it was, for me, it was really, really just eye-opening and refreshing to see how God does care and how God does see and how God does work through things, even if we don't see the whole picture. And today, as we dive in, we're going to look at something else God always does for us. Now, I mentioned last week that I went and saw the movie uh, Death on the Nile. Um, I, I love a good mystery, a, a whodunit story. It's very captivating to me. And um, the point is, you know, in these, when you see a, a, a mystery movie, you've got to try and find the details. And then when the big reveal happens at the end, I love it when they do the montages of all the clues they've been thrown in your face the whole time, but you've missed them all until it all makes sense. Um, if there's, you know, Harry Potter fans, you know, in one of the Harry Potter movies, I won't spoil it because I know some people are still reading it. Real late, I know. But there's, there's a big reveal with one of the characters before this certain character passes away of something they've been doing the whole time. And everyone has this revelation like, oh, that's why this and this. But there's a good mystery, and people like mysteries. You like seeing how all the decisions play out and how everything comes to pass. But one of my favorite movies in this genre actually was a board game first. Some of you may know right away where I'm going with this. Have you ever seen this movie or played this game? Clue. I love going through this game. I absolutely love watching this movie. And um, I, I didn't know this the first time I saw it, but when this movie first came out, you only saw one of the three endings in the movie theater. And so people left the theater talking about, what ending did you get? Oh, that wasn't who did it when I saw it. This is who I saw it. And then when the movie actually came out on VHS back in the day, what's that, VHS, right? When it actually came out, this may have actually been a beta at one point. It's crazy. It, uh, you, it's the first time that everyone got to see in succession all three endings in one piece. But people love a good mystery. And we all know when you think of the game Clue, we all know the phrases that go with it. You know, it was Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. Or one of those phrases that ends the game, right? But the whole point of this game is you've got to find the killer. You've got to unsolve this mystery. You're in pursuit of the truth. And it's not easy. 
When you're playing this game, you've got to ask yourself these things. And these are some details to winning the game of Clue, which, just full honesty, I have never won the game Clue. And I get competitive at board games, and I just haven't won this one. So Adam Anderson has a win streak. He's going to go down soon. But things when you're playing Clue, you have to pay attention. You've got to pay attention to what everyone is doing. You have to ask the right questions. You have to follow the right leads. You have to take the right notes. One wrong note and you make the wrong declaration and you lose the entire game. And you have to be aggressive. It is not a game where you have to play things safe. You've got to go for it. But what I love about this is not just the mystery, it's the fact that this game is not over. People can get you know, kicked out of the game or lose, but the game keeps going until you find out what actually happened. Where did the murder take place? Who did it and what weapon was used? You've got to know everything to win this game. There's no giving up, there's no quitting until the truth is pursued and chased down. Now, at the start of the game, that's ultimately what you're going for. You are pursuing the truth. And there's an interesting stat that shows that we as Americans, we hate lost things. We hate lost things. We pursue lost things. That's why, husbands, when you lose your keys, there is a hot pursuit in the household to find those keys. Or that wallet. My wife likes to move them to a place called where it belongs. <laughs> Coming up on 14 years married, married, I still am baffled at where it belongs actually is. And she gets frustrated when I tell her that. But when something goes missing, sometimes we go into a panic to find it. We have to, we have to pursue it, and it, it consumes our life. Have you ever... This is, it's maybe it's just me, but it's, it happens. I'll be in bed, and all of a sudden I'll wonder where something is. Where is that? And it's like, it's like when your brain goes, you got to go find it. And I'll ask Stephanie. I'll be like, Stephanie, do you know where this is? And she, I hear her just go, oh, no. No, I don't, but just go. Because she knows that I will toss and turn, and I will start randomly asking questions. Is it in the cupboard downstairs? Is it in the drawer? And I, I just can't rest until I find it. I don't like not knowing where something is. Most of us know what it means like, what it feels like to lose something of value. And did you know that as an American average person, we spend two and a half total days, if you count the time, each year looking for lost items? Two and a half days. U.S. households combined spend $2.7 billion a year in replacing lost things. Not broken things, lost things. It's a lot of money that we spend trying to find things. And think about it. When you lose one sock, I know we blame the dryer. The dryer ate it, right? But we've got to find that sock. You lose the remote TV, the remote to the, the TV, you've got to find it. We lose our keys, our glasses, our wallet. We, this pursuit happens to find these things. Have you ever seen a parent with a young infant? You know they've lost something when the baby's crying and they're on their hands and knees looking. That pacifier has sprouted legs and it is gone. And you know, because the uh, you know new moms now, and what we find is, you know, when you have a baby, you don't have one pacifier; you have a bucket of pacifiers. There are some in the diaper bag, there are some in the pockets. And I remember when uh, we were first gifted our pacifier clip that clipped onto our daughter's onesie. Game changer. That was amazing. But we lose things; we have to find them. We all know what it's like to to get lost. Now, luckily with GPS, sometimes we don't get as lost anymore. But even that has mistakes sometimes whether it's the machine's mistake or your mistake not following the machine, we can still get lost, and it's not a good feeling. Losing something or being lost. And we actually define the word lost as one of these two definitions. The first one is unable to find one's way or not knowing one's whereabouts. Sure, we've all been there. My kids, a lot of our kids, will never understand the importance of the navigator with MapQuest printed directions. 
and you having to reset your odometer. And how many miles? 2.3 miles. Reset. So you're tracking the miles, and if you missed that turn, there was no automatic, oh, turn around and take this exit. It was a very important job. But sometimes we get lost, not knowing one's whereabouts. That's one definition of lost. The second is denoting something that has been taken away or cannot be recovered. So, so things, right? We have things that get lost and we can't find them. Whether we've lost them, they got taken away, but they're gone. We cannot find them anymore. They're lost. Now, what I love about Jesus, Jesus takes this word lost in Scripture, and he gives it a much deeper definition, a much greater meaning when he says it. He applies it to those and describes those lost people are people not just that you don't know where they are. Lost people are people, he says, are people who don't know me. That's who he says, this is lost. And the word lost that he actually uses in the original translation of the Bible is much harsher than our definition of lost today. In scripture, it's a word that means the state of being ruined, utterly destroyed, totally decimated. That's, that's a, lot, a lot more deep than just not knowing where you are. A lot more deep than just something being gone, you don't know where it is, being utterly destroyed and totally decimated. It's the same word that's found in John 3.16 when Jesus talks about what he's here for. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish. That's that same word right there. That's lost. Should not be lost, but have eternal life. Perish is the biblical term there of lost. If you could replace that word perish with lost, think of the context of what it says now. You're not just lost. Someone is in the state of being ruined. Someone is in the state of being utterly destroyed and totally decimated. That is deep when you think about the ramifications of what that word can go for. This is what is used to describe the people who don't know Jesus. And the Bible says this about the lost. In Romans 8, 7, it says the lost, this is like being hostile to God. Being hostile to God. In Ephesians 2, 12, it says this is being separated from him. This is having no hope. In Colossians 1, 13, it says these, the lost, this is being in a domain of darkness. I've shared with you before my number one fear in life the dark. I hate the dark. My wife is on the, uh, the retreat with the preschool today, and you know what I got to do last night? I slept with the light on. I slept like a baby. It was awesome. When Stephanie is home, there is a little shimmer of light, and I don't get it because her eyes will be closed, and she'll be like, that needs to get turned off. Like, How do you even know? But she says the same thing to me. You close your eyes and you can't see anything. How do you even know? All that to say, I don't want to be in a domain of darkness. I don't want to be lost. But understand what has been communicated when we say God is pursuing the lost. He's saying that he pursues these kinds of people. God pursues those who are perishing. God pursues those who are, in, who are ruined, who are in the state of being utterly destroyed. This is who God pursues. Those people who are, are wasting their lives away by not having him as a part of it. God's pursuing these people. Those are the lost. And this is who God pursues. And this is exactly why when Jesus tells the story, he tells these parables to a bunch of Pharisees, the religious leaders who were about to have their mind blown when they didn't get to, they finally get to understand this is the love of God, not what you perceive the love of God to be. He was going to totally change their world and rock their world on this is what the love of God looks like. He was going to blow their minds. It was bold and aggressive, never giving up. And that's the pursuit that we're going to talk about today. We talked about how God is always listening. He's always speaking. He's always seeing. Today we're going to talk about how God is always pursuing. God is always pursuing. The one reason Jesus came to earth was to pursue us, to chase down, to bridge that gap, because God was not going to let us slip away. He was seeking out those who were lost, those who were in need of him. 
And in three of the most well-known parables in scripture in Luke 15, he vividly illustrates what this definition of lost looks like and what God does when he is pursuing someone who is lost. We're going to see this word a lot in Luke 15. We're going to see it twice with the lost sheep. We're going to see it twice with the lost coin. And we're going to see it again with the lost son. So our main text, we're going to start Luke 15, verses 1 through 3. And it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told this parable. Now, never in a million years did the Pharisees and religious leaders view as God as someone who's going to pursue someone who was lost and redeem them and forgive them and want this relationship. You see, the Pharisees were of this, this mindset where if something bad was happening to you, that means you were far from God and he wasn't going to pursue you until you made it right with him, until you atoned for your sins. And as a matter of fact, the problems you're having right now are probably God punishing you because you're not right with him. So what Jesus was about to do, he's about to talk about this God who was going to celebrate and go crazy pursuing one person. This was total counterculture to what they believed and what they were telling the people. They literally would say, you have to go through leaps and bounds to get God to see you. And if you're just an active, good-for-nothing, rotten sinner, good luck. God is not going to waste his time here. He wasn't in the help the sinner business. He was in the get yourself up so then I can work with you business. This flip that Jesus was doing, eating with sinners, inviting them over, inviting himself over. Have you ever had that friend who said, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight? Some of you can be like, oh, man, what am I supposed to do? Jesus did that. He went to people and said, hey, I'm coming to have dinner with you. And people didn't turn him away. People got upset, but it was the opposite crowd getting upset. The crowd that you would think, this is the crowd that's going to celebrate Jesus is coming over, or Jesus is going over. This was the crowd saying, how dare he? How dare he go talk to that person? But Jesus was going to do it, and he was going to show them why this was so important. William, uh, a commenter, William Barclay, says this. No Pharisee had ever dreamed of a God like that. A great Jewish scholar has admitted that this is the one absolutely new thing which Jesus taught about God, that he actually searched for us. A Jew might have agreed that those who came crawling home to God in self-abasement and prayed for pity might find it, but he would never have conceived of a God who went out in search for sinners. Jesus dives into a story, and we see the pursuit that he talks about. Picking up in verse uh, 4, we talk about a lost sheep. He says this, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Here you have one little sheep. One sheep gone on its way in danger. You know who the sheep represents, right? The sheep is us. The sheep is us going off on our own way. We're the sheep. It's me. It's you. It's people that are at times not walking with God, even the people that don't know God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep, we all, sorry, let me start over on that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then you have this shepherd in the story. And if we're the sheep, then obviously who is the shepherd? We got Jesus. We got God as the shepherd. John 10 refers to him as the good shepherd. Not just any shepherd. This is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He leaves the 99 sheep to go in search of the lost one. And he searches until he finds it. And when he finds it, they're celebrating. There's rejoicing. This isn't just a, hey, I found the one. Get back in line. What the heck is wrong with you? 
Why would you run off like that? You know better. There's a great video of a sheep. I don't know if you've seen it online. It says, me promising never to do this again. And it shows a guy pulling a sheep out of a hole. And like two seconds later, the sheep goes, bounce, bounce, back in the hole. <laughs> but you know what I love about God? He pursues it. He'd go right back to that hole and say, let's go. Let's get you out because he pursues the lost. And it's not just, again, get back in line. It's a celebration when he finds the one. He then continues with the parable of the lost coin. He says this, picking up in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's a joyful thing when she finds this coin, right? This coin is of great value. Now, in context here, a coin represents one day's worth of work. Can you imagine losing one day's worth of wages? Something is gone, it's valuable to you. And I love that she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she seeks diligently. Nothing else is on her agenda right now. What does she need to do? She needs to find this coin. Once she finds it, once it's tracked down, similar to the story of the lost lamb, there's a celebration. There's a party. They found it. She found it. In this story, the same thing's represented. We're like that coin that's gone. And Jesus is this woman that is trying to find us. Jesus uses something so many people relate to then, and even so many of us relate to today, money. Have you ever lost money, like legitimately lost money? Whether it was a direct deposit not being what it was supposed to be? Man, when that happens, in those moments, what happens? It's like, call the bank, I don't care if they're closed, we're talking to somebody, we're leaving a voicemail, we're calling our boss, we're finding out what happened to the money, where did it go? I remember I went on a camping trip with my dad, and he had uh, cash in his wallet. And at some point during our drive to get to the campground, he had lost some of the cash in his wallet. Whether he had pulled it out when we were reading at a restaurant or whatever, but he got to the campground and he was ready to pay and he was missing some of his money. And man, I'll tell you, that car, all the gear got pulled out of the car. We, we were scavenging for that money. It became priority number one. Where is the money? Because none of us wanted to sleep in the minivan. We wanted to sleep in the campground. He found it. We celebrated. <laughs> there was a celebration. We did not have to bundle up in the minivan or turn around. We, we were able to do our camping trip. This was a very personal thing Jesus did. He did it intentionally using money. But then he gets even more personal and goes from possession to money to people. He goes on and talks about the lost son. And I love that he uses a father and kids. And I know that when I read this story for the first time after having my own kids, it meant a whole lot more to me than before I had kids. Now, in The Lost Son, we're not, we don't have time today to read through line for line the whole story. But a lot of you may know it, and if not, I'm gonna, I'll do a flyby on the story. But in this time, there's a son who goes to his dad. And he says, Dad, I want my inheritance. What he was really saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because the son was not going to get this inheritance until his dad passed away. That it would stay in the possession of the dad until he's gone. So the son going and saying, I want this, is equivalent of him saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my money, and I'm going to leave. The dad, can, I can't imagine the heartbreak he feels, but he agrees. And he gives his son, one of his two sons, he gives the one son that asks his money. The son said, you're dead to me, but his father gave it to him. He allowed his son the freedom to make the decision. He got his estate. And the Bible tells us that the son went off to a far country and the money didn't last very long. He lived a crazy party lifestyle and he blew the money really, really fast. And it got to the point where now he had squandered it 
He had had done reckless living, and now he wants to hire himself out as a servant to feed the pigs and live with the pigs, back with his dad even, because that's where he's living now, with pigs, eating what pigs eat because he has nothing. So he has this idea of going back to his dad and saying, I've got to go talk to my dad. I've got to be one of his servants. I don't deserve anything, but i just got to see if I can do something there, even if it's be with the animals. Can you imagine anything lower in this context than a Jewish man, for a Jewish man, than feeding pigs? Jesus knew what was going to get people's attention by telling the story. And no doubt the religious leaders of the time were probably thinking at that moment, this kid's getting what he deserves. He wished his dad was dead. He got his money. He ran off and squandered it. Now he's eating, sleeping, and living with pigs? Good. This guy deserves it. Jesus tells a different side of the story, though. This is the kind of person God would pursue. This was someone that God didn't want to be far from. Picking up in Luke 16, or 15, verse 16, he says this. The son was miserable, and he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Last week we spoke of Hagar and how she felt when she was lost. When she was in the desert, she thought she was doing what she was told to do by her her leaders, and she had a son, but she was getting treated bad because of the circumstances that led to the son. And she's in the desert, she was crying out, God, do you see me? God, do you see me? God saw her. Well, this is where things get even crazier here, because not only is this son seen here, but we're about to see exactly what it feels like when God sees this, and not only sees, but God pursues this boy. Continuing the passage, it says, And he arose and came to found his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran. And side note, it was totally undignified for a man to run the way that he was running to his son in this moment. You did not do this, but dad didn't care. He embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put him on him. Put a ring on his hand take, and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. What a picture that is for me. It, can you just vividly see that? And I love that when, if you think about it, that means the father saw his son coming from a long way off. He was looking for him. And when he saw him coming, there wasn't a, oh, what do you want now? You want your your brother's inheritance? (laughs) What else can you take from me? I've given you everything that was yours. There was no, where have you been? What have you done? What's going on? It was a full-on sprint and embrace and celebration that his son was home. He took the robe, the shoes, the ring, the fattened calf. That was a big, fat, delicious calf. And they had a party because his son was home. Charles Spurgeon writes it like this. He wrote a sermon, he preached a sermon called Many Kisses for Returning Sinners. And his whole sermon was based off that one line where it said, and his father kissed him. His whole message, his father kissed him. He wrote this. He said, see the contrast. There is the son scarcely daring to think of embracing his father. And his father has scarcely seen him before he has fallen on his neck. The condensation of God towards the penitent sinners is very great. He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. God on the neck of a sinner, what a wonderful picture. What a picture that is, right? Not only of God running toward the wayward, but when he gets there, embracing him. Saying, welcome home, I'm so glad you're here. And listen, I love that 
in the story, we see Jesus saying, God is pursuing people then. God pursues people today. When I read these parables, there's something to stick, that sticks out. Of course, the big idea is that God pursues the lost. That's the big idea. But I want to throw a word in there. I want to say this. God doesn't just pursue the lost. God pursues the one that is lost. God pursues the one that is lost. If you look at these verses again, there's a highlighted word. In uh, Luke uh, 15, 4 through 7, it says this. It'll say he'll go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And then it says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And then with the coin, it says, if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house? And then at the end, just so I tell you, there is joy over the, the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The father had two sons, and the, rejoice happened, the rejoicing happened with the one son who came back. There is power, and I call this the value of one. There is value in the one. Value in the one person who comes to know Jesus. The father had two sons, but it was the one that was lost that he said, I want to pursue this son, that he grieved after, that he ran towards, that he saw that infinite value who, when he came to him, the value of the one. You see this value in the searching when he leaves the 99. When the shepherd leaves the 99 and turns the house upside down, you see the value of the one. You see this in the celebration that ensues with the, the found sheep and the found coin. There is value in the one. The woman calls her friend. She says, rejoice with me. The father throws a party, puts on his best robe on his son, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet for the one. When we go to Mexico this year, you know how many families we're building a house for? One. Some people, someone has actually even asked me, is it worth the resources to go? Is it worth this many thousands of dollars to go and build a house for one family? What else could we do? And I would say, if you look over the years, each year of one house that's built, can you look at that and say there's not value in the one? Not value in reaching one family. And in this case, one person. Reaching one person. You can't read these parables without the value of one screaming off the page. And the clear teaching from Jesus here is that those who lost, those who are outside of relationship with him, he wants them. He wants them desperately. He will pursue them to no end and celebrate when they come to him. They are of great value. This is why he went on this ultimate search and rescue mission by walking with us the way he did. Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come so they would also just seek and find him. He came to seek. He came to find. He wants the lost. You can say it this way. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those in the state of being ruined, in the state of being utterly destroyed, in the state of being totally decimated. That's who Jesus is seeking. That's who he wants to celebrate. It was the ultimate way God would show us how he pursues us was Jesus. The ultimate way God would show the lost how much they are valued, how much he loves them, was with what Jesus did. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, I love that line, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for the one to make it right before he died. He didn't wait for the world to make it right before he died. He said, while we were still messing it up, that's when he came. That's when he died. That is the love and the never-ending pursuit of Jesus. And it didn't stop then. It still happens today. Don't buy into the idea that you don't matter. Don't buy into the idea that someone else out there doesn't matter. Regardless of who they are, where they stand, how different they are from you, God pursues the one. He pursues them. 
I recently learned that uh, this past two decades, this is a, a crazy statistic, these past two decades, suicide is up 33%. 33%, and it's the second leading cause of death between those of 10 to 34 years old. 10 to 34. I think that's a direct result of the enemy bleeding lies that life is hopeless, that life doesn't matter. People thinking, I'm just one. I'm just one, I don't matter. In the grand scheme of the seven billion people on earth, this one life will not make a difference. And God said, I sent my son for this one, for you. It happened for you. You matter. The people of the city matter. People on the left matter. People on the right matter. People wearing masks, people not wearing masks, the vax, the unvaxed, everybody matters. God loves all of us and he pursues the one. If you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with Jesus, that means this morning that right now the Bible would say you're lost and Jesus says, I don't want you to be lost. I want you to know that I'm in pursuit of you. I don't think anybody's here by accident, whether you, you're here in line or here in person right now or you're watching us online, whether or not someone dragged you here, and I've said it before, but maybe there'll be two heel marks from here to your car in the pavement going out because that's how you were dragged to church today. You're here for a reason because God is pursuing the one. <clears throat> God wants you to, to know that there's a better way if you give up your own way. There's a better way if you give up doing your own thing. There's a better way if you give up running away from him and instead run to him because he's already in pursuit of you. Francis Thompson was a man um, who has been, he wrote a thing called the hound of heaven. He referred to God as the hound of heaven. I love that visual because if you know what a hound does, it goes in pursuit and it doesn't stop. Francis Thompson, he was born in England in 1859. He grew up wanting to become a writer, but his father wanted him to follow in his steps and become a physician. He tried it for a season, ended up leaving school, and he went to the big city of London to pursue his original dreams of being a writer. While he was in London, he became so sick, and after getting some medical treatment, he became addicted to the opium that was prescribed to him. And things went downhill for a while for him there. He became so strung out on opium that it eventually led to poverty and homelessness. And his biographer wrote that he would actually sleep on the banks of the Thames River, and he sold matches to stay alive. But at some point in this moment, some point while he was living, sleeping on the river at the low point of his life, he had this revelation about God pursuing him, and he wrote this poem called The Hound of Heaven. When he wrote this poem, it, we're not going to read it because it's really, really long, but I will read a commentary that was about this poem by writer John O'Connor. He says this, The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceases on his running, Ever drawing near in the chase, with unhurried and unperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though in sinner human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself. Divine grace follows after, unwearingly following ever after, till the soul feels its pressure, forcing it to turn, him, turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. And God is that hound of heaven. God is that hound that when he's in pursuit, he doesn't just stop and say, oh man, they're, they're on their own way now. I got, I, I'm never be able to catch up to this guy. We don't have a God that gives up the pursuit. We don't have a God that gives up the chase. We have the God who's right there running to you. And when we make that choice, we say, God, I'm gonna go back to you like the prodigal son did. When he says, you know what? I'm at my lowest point. I, I don't even deserve this. That's when we get to feel God's embrace, God's clothes, God's, God's celebration for the life that we have given him. Not the you shoulda, you coulda, you woulda, where have you been? but the party, and that's what we get to celebrate because we have a God that never gives up in his pursuit. To invite, uh, I would say the worship team today, Clint, invite Clint back up today. 
as we get ready for, for baptisms. And I want to encourage those of you, uh, maybe, maybe you haven't made that decision to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you're online today and you're watching and you're saying, you know, I don't know if I've ever really made this commitment to say, I want to I give my life to God. I want to end this, pers- this runaway and go into this pursuit towards him. God loves you. God loves the one person, that one that says, today's the day I'm going to give my life to you. There's a value in one. And you know what happens when you give your life to God? I'm not going to say it gets easier. That's not true. But it is a party. It is a celebration. All of heaven rejoices. I love that line in that story. It says, heaven rejoices when the one person comes. It is a party, and that is what Jesus came for, to party with us in this decision. Today, we're going to have a little bit of a party time right now. We're going to have some baptisms. And what I love is baptism, what we're going to see is we're going to see three people get baptized today. These people have decided. They've made that declaration. They said, I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for Jesus. Jesus came into their life. They've given their lives to him. And scripture talks about this being the public declaration that we get to make with baptism. The symbolism is is like Jesus in the tomb. When he was in the tomb, he was buried. When we get in the tank, it's like our old life is gone. We go into the water and it's like we're buried. But Jesus rose from the dead three days later and we come out of the water. That's what that symbol is. I'm alive. I'm new because Jesus is in my heart. Now, don't make any mistake. There's not magical water in this tub. This tub is not going to make anybody cleaner. In fact, I had to put a little bit of chlorine in there just to make sure it wouldn't make anybody dirtier. But just know that this water is a symbol for what God is doing in people's hearts, what he's already done in people's hearts. And after these three get baptized, I want to open it up to anybody out there who maybe says, I've never been baptized before, but today I want to do it. I don't have spare swimsuits for you to change into, but I do have sweats over there for you to change into. All I would ask is take out your wallet, take out your keys, take out your phone. That would be a very expensive mistake, right? But if you feel that need today, you have that tug in your heart to say, you know what, I've never done this. I've never declared, I've never declared my decision to follow Jesus. You want to do that today, climb on in. Just come and empty your pockets. We have towels and sweats for you. Jump in, get baptized. It's going to be an amazing celebration. And I'll encourage you all today too, when, when someone comes up out of the water, scream, cheer. This is what it's all about. This is we get to celebrate together a new life in Christ. Can I have you all stand with me? This is going to be an awesome time. I'm going to go change real quick, and I'll be back, and we're going to have baptisms right over here. It's going to be awesome. Let's celebrate. Let's cheer. God is good. He's in pursuit of the one, and man, we get to give our life to a God who never stops his pursuit. Amen? Father, you are so amazing. I love that no matter how far away we may be, you are always there pursuing. You're always there wanting us to come back, God, and when we do, God, you embrace. You celebrate. There's a party. There's cheering. God, I ask today that as we go in our lives, we know that you are in pursuit. Whenever we may feel far, whenever we feel like you aren't hearing or you aren't speaking or you aren't seeing God, we can always rely on we know that you are pursuing us with every fiber of your being. We are important. The people in the city are important. And I pray that as we leave here, we are able to convey that message to people that there's a God who loves and pursues everyone who is lost. So God, we give you the glory and we're so glad that we get to celebrate with you today. We thank you, we love you, and everybody said, amen. Amen.